and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with an update on the many trials Trump is facing, and whether there will be a verdict and sentencing of the former president before the next election, after which, if he wins back the presidency, Trump will terminate the prosecutions against him. Joining us is Harry Littman, a former United States Attorney and Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Justice Department, a senior fellow at USC's Annenberg Center. He's executive producer and host of the Talking Feds podcast and the senior legal affairs columnist at the Los Angeles Times, where his latest article, which we will discuss, is Trump called the latest 14th Amendment ruling a victory. He couldn't be more wrong. Then we'll go to the Netherlands to speak with Rob Ryman, the founder and president of the Nexus Institute, which brings together the world's foremost intellectuals, artists and politicians to think and talk about humanist questions that really matter. The Nexus Institute has become one of Europe's most prestigious organizations to inspire public intellectual debate. He's the author of the best-selling books, Nobility of Spirit, A Forgotten Ideal, and To Fight Against This Age, about the rise of fascism and how to combat it, in which he warned back in 2010 that Gert Wilders is the prototype of contemporary fascism. We will discuss Wilders' victory in the Dutch elections and what it means for Europe and Ukraine. Then finally we'll look into whether the Indian government is behind an alleged assassination attempt on a Sikh activist on US soil after another Sikh activist was killed in Canada causing a rift between India and Canada. Joining us is an expert on India and Pakistan, Christine Fair, who is a professor in the Security Studies program within Georgetown University's Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service. She previously served as a political officer with the United Nations Assistance Mission to Afghanistan in Kabul, and she is the author of Fighting to the End, The Pakistan Army's Way of War, in their own words, Understanding Laska-e-Taiba, And she speaks and reads Hindi, Urdu, and Punjabi. And she has a recent article at Lawfare, The Deep Roots of the India-Canada Diplomatic Rift, and another at Foreign Policy, India's spat with Canada is a win-win situation for Modi, both of which we will discuss. And joining us now is Harry Littman, a former United States Attorney and Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Justice Department. He's now a senior fellow at the USC Annenberg Center. He is executive producer and host of the Talking Feds podcast and a senior legal affairs columnist at the Los Angeles Times, where his latest article is Trump called the latest 14th Amendment ruling a victory. He couldn't be more wrong. Welcome to Background Briefing, Harry Littman. Thanks, Ian. Always a pleasure. Happy Thanksgiving to the whole Background Briefing Army. (laughs) Thank you. Army. (laughs) It's the smallest army on the planet. The Legion. (laughs) So I obviously want to talk to you about the the D.C. trial, the Florida trial, and the Atlanta-Georgia trial. But let's just touch on your latest article at the uh, Los Angeles Times, in which you say the opinion by Colorado District Judge Sarah B. Wallace is a giant step towards disqualifying Trump from the ballot on constitutional grounds. And, of course, that goes against all of the other analysis that we've heard. It was basically, you know, he got a get-out-of-jail-free card for insurrection. Right. So let me let me tell you why I have this quixotic view. First, you know, the background um, assumption has been that this is a real sort of long shot and kind of a constitutional puzzle. It feels like it's right or it must be in some way, but no one knows how. Um, and I think it has been a common uh, assumption of the very uh, impressive cadre of scholars and commentators who um, have been uh, championing it, that it would need to go to the U.S. Supreme Court. If you think about the U.S. Supreme Court, if if that abstract legal question comes to them in some way and would have to be served up, they would be very likely to say, you know, we can't, this isn't, at every other court, one other background fact, has dodged the question by saying it's not ripe or um, this is not for us, it's for Congress. So they never, they haven't engaged on the merits. And it seems to me the U.S. Supreme Court would, in the absence of some trial judge actually having evidence, 
and uh, making credibility findings and all those things, they would say the same thing. We can't decide what happened. We can opine on the law. Um, and so I've seen, as, as many others, very interesting, but how the hell could it actually happen? There's a pretty clear path now to how it could happen. It's going to go to the Colorado Supreme Court. They can, um, there, there are ways they can uh, reverse her, of course, but it's so much more tangible and concrete. All they need to do is affirm on her factual findings and he engaged in, that's a sort of a First Amendment analysis, and insurrection. Um, and then there's this little piece that caused um, people to say it's a get out of jail free card. And what they meant was that she read the, the, the clause to say an officer of the United States doesn't include the president. And so everyone, it's, it's sort of a, a handy soundbite to say the president only gets a get out of jail free card. And that means Jefferson Davis wouldn't have been subject let me just say it it doesn't list the president. There are other clauses that don't. I don't think it's a crazy um, argument, but I think it's one that is now really set up for the Colorado Supreme Court to go the other way. And that's the 5%. And then 95%, the table's now set, whereas it was bare before. So we're, you know, sort of a step away from the US Supreme Court. It all has to happen pretty quickly. Colorado has to set its ballot probably within, you know, uh, less than two months. And uh, you can see a path now, whereas before it seemed very unclear how a court or the courts of the country could ever affirm the claim, which is the basic argument that people like Tribe and Ludwig have been making. You don't need anything else. It's quote unquote self-executing. So to me, and by the way, the little thing that they need to do, they would have had to do anyway. So to me, it took it from really kind of far out there, speculative and quixotic to, you know, a, a definite concrete possibility. And um, that you can you can really um, sketch out what happens. So that's my um, quixotic view. Should the Colorado Supreme Court um, actually, they will review the case, should they reverse on officer and affirm on everything else, it will look not so quixotic anymore. And I'll, um, you know, people people will go back, I think, to the op-ed you've just quoted from. Right. So anyway, there you have it. But this is, of course, the Colorado challenge is not the only, there's been several, or a couple others. That but none of them got out the gate, at least if you assume right. that the U.S. Supreme Court has to decide it. Because right. what's the Supreme Court going to do with an opinion that says, well, this isn't ripe yet, or this is for Congress to do? They can't, even if they were to reverse that legal finding, you got to start all over again. Somebody, somebody has to look at the law and the facts and say... As you would, you know, if you were trying to disqualify someone because they're not 35, you can make that legal ruling, but you need the birth certificate and you need a holding. You know, it looks to me like he's 34 and that's my ruling. Somebody had to do that. And that's just what the right. judge in Colorado did. Right. But that what you're referring to, the, the age of the president to, to qualify to run is right. in the Constitution. So, so is this. So is no doubt about it. This so is, is Section 3, though, isn't it? Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which is what right, we've been it was talking put about. In, and there's only like three or four qualifications. Everyone agrees this is one, meaning if you don't meet it, you may not be an officer of the United States. So, but it's it's obviously not as cut and dried as uh, are you 35. But, you know, states plenty of times have said, you know, I don't think somebody's from this state. It's a, it's a judgment call when they take the facts and you, you maybe have to be for Congress. Or I don't think someone's natural born. They do that a lot. A voter says it shouldn't be on the ballot and the secretary of state, you know, makes determination and then it goes to the courts. All those things have happened here. But in this very, you know, much more sort of subjective um, uh, standard or qualification and one, of course, involving who's going to be the president of the United States. It still seems mind boggling that the U.S. Supreme Court would make this legal ruling that would um, eliminate Trump from the ballot. 
but um, it's, you know, we're, as I say, a giant step closer. Right, but what about the originalists on the Supreme Court? I mean, if it's in the Constitution, spelled out pretty clearly in Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, how are they going to get around that? Here's one way. Two, I can think of two ways if they're looking to get around. One would be to say the definition that the Colorado courts adopted of insurrection was um, too um, uh, loose, too expansive, so send it back down. The other one, though, we're getting pretty nerdy, but I know you've got a brainy crowd, the background briefing legions. They, I thought they would say, as they've said in the gerrymandering cases, this is just not for us to decide, it's for Congress. But they would have to take one extra step now. If they were saying that generally, they'd basically be saying as a matter of constitutional separation of powers and respect for a coordinate branch, we say this has to be Congress. But this is a state now. And if a state court, I think, would obviously be competent to say somebody's not 35. So they have to say that it's for Congress, even as against, and you know, therefore it was unconstitutional for a state court even to decide it. And that's that's you know, that's pretty funky, it seems to me. So we are in let me put it this way. I think we are really in play. And it's only the sort of taking a step back and not using lawyers' tools, but just, you know, as if we were talking in a bar, it just seems so mind-boggling that this is the way the national nightmare might end. But when you get try to get serious about the Constitution, you know, it sure looks like he took an oath. It sure looks like he engaged in insurrection. Uh, and, you know, what else is it for? It's got to mean something, right? Right. Well, let's talk about the other trials, the D.C. Sure. trial, which is supposed to begin in March of 24, the Florida trial that's supposed to begin in May of 20, and I know you've written about some with some skepticism, yeah. albeit justified, about Judge Cannon being in the bag for Trump. She already displayed that earlier on and was, was rebuked by the, the appeals court fairly soundly and then of course you've got Atlanta Georgia that's supposed to start on August the 5th of 2024 it's it's obviously a crowded schedule and do you think that if Judge Cannon delays it how bad would that be because it wouldn't that open the the way for the Georgia case in I mean in other words the DC case starting in March of 2024 how long would that run do you think so that is the the um, you know that's that's the north star here that we have to keep our eye on and you know I think it will likely start um, not much later than that. How long? I my sort of uh, guesstimate as a former prosecutor is the U.S. Uh, case takes three to four weeks and the defense case takes one to two. Um, you know, and jury selection, et cetera. So less than less than two months. And otherwise, I think after the last week, Ian, we're kind of out of luck to the extent we think it's important, even exigent, as I do, for the American people to know whether the the uh, person they're voting for is a convicted felon. Because, you know, Fonnie Willis, this perplexed me a little. She was ready to go with all 19 in the last October, and now she goes for August Maybe she thinks that stakes out a date that will hold for her. But she herself has said, case can take four months, and that will probably be conservative. You have to add on to that jury selection, and you have to add on to that a defense case. And you do the math, and there's no way it finishes by, it's ongoing, but no way it finishes by uh, election time. And now back to canon. You know, in the bag or not, I think is almost beside the point. She just she just doesn't have game for running a tight courtroom. She and she's done something a little sneaky, it seems to me, which I which I found particularly unsettling. She she granted very big uh, extensions in interim deadlines that if you think about what's coming next, nearly assure a similar bump in the trial date, but she hasn't done that yet. She's going to wait. And uh, so that gives the department nothing to try to recuse her with. But she will herself be almost certainly after August 4th, 
Um, and so if the Fonnie Willis case holds, that means she she can't start until 2025 or whenever. So I really think of the criminal trials pending, there's a little bit of a wild card in the New York Alvin Bragg case, the hush money case, but you know, it's conduct before he was president. And so I, I think really we are down to one bullet in the in the gun and that's it's it's a good bullet, although the Mar-a-Lago case is a very clean one. He really should be convicted with no trouble. And it's more complicated the January 6th case, but that I think will go. And in some ways, it's the most fitting because it really goes to the heart of what made him such a wicked uh, president and a um, a wicked defeated president after the after the election. That he will go down in infamy for that conduct. So it it makes sense that he'd be convicted for it. But right now, there's there's no backup plan. There's no uh, there's there's only a belt, no suspenders. Right, but if if he's convicted, that that would be sometime probably in in May, right, of next year, and and right. Well, may you know, and then June, what about sentencing? I mean, in other words, is he going to run for the presidency from a jail cell? No, I think the answer is clearly not, um, because he will be sentenced. But then the question will be: Does the judge suspend the sentence while? Uh, he appeals. And that's a judgment call normally that a judge makes. It has to do with whether there's anything kind of weighty that a defendant can raise on appeal. But first ever president who's going to be raising, you know, maybe they're not so hard, but first time uh, on a, you know, constitutional claims, I think it's just quite likely she will say, and she probably should say, um, you can be out of jail while you while you pursue your appeals. If the Supreme Court takes him up, we're talking about you know over a year. And if he becomes president during that time, there's no question of pardoning himself. He doesn't have to do it. He can just instruct the Department of Justice to drop the as yet unfinished case. So I, I think the conviction might. You would think it would matter a lot, but, you know, you would think 91 indictments would matter a lot and they don't seem to. But it it could matter a lot for people in terms of making their decisions. But the prospects of his running or governing from jail, because if he's president, there will, you know, there'll be other decisions saying you can't be in jail while you're president. So the prospects of his running or governing from jail are close to nil. I would say, but the prospect of being convicted of a really serious crime after he's the basically um, assumed or even anointed nominee, uh, depend you know when the Republican mention is, I, th- that I think is a is a pretty remains a pretty strong prospect. So just in the last couple of minutes, then Harry Lippman, yeah. let's let's talk about the uh, Fifth Circuit decision, essentially to gut Section Two of the Voting Rights Act after the Chief Justice John Roberts gutted Section 5 some time back. And this relates, of course, to what we were just talking about, the election and whether Trump could be re-elected. Well, it looks as if that decision is going to help Trump because it's, it goes against any efforts to stop the most flagrant gerrymandering that's going on at very, in various uh, states to the benefit of the Republicans. And it seems so much like a political ruling uh, I mean, I recall when when uh, Justice uh, Chief Justice John Roberts got rid of Section Five. He said, "Oh, you know, racial prejudice is all over, and we're we're all America's healed." Well, clearly, it's not. I mean, you've seen. <laughs> he said about- one other thing at the time, which is, "We can do this because Section Two remains." There you go. And um, yeah. and now Section Two hangs by a thread. It can only be. Wait, I shouldn't say now. So you're you're totally right. But the if's a big if. I think the Supreme Court will take up the case. The Fifth Circuit, pretty conservative circuit, has gone the other way. The, the, the court has pretty much, I mean, the court has reinvigorated Section 2, even after their decision about Section 5. Just very quickly for your listeners, Section 5 was a special thing that states had to a- apply to the DOJ to make changes. 
Roberts junked that just for the reasons Ian said. But there remains Section 2, which makes it, um, which is violated if there's a gerrymander that has an imp- a bad disparate racial impact. And even as they said, we won't look into gerrymanders generally, they said, we, but we can look at really racially disproportionate things that, you know, states that should have um, eight, you know, districts with that minority representation and they've been gerrymandered. So they have three. Now that's always remained, but the court, even as it's taken many cases that do this has never expressly said that private people like the NAACP that did it here in, um, Arkansas, I think, uh, can bring those cases. And the Eighth Circuit has just said that they can't. If that holds up in the Supreme Court, then really we're down to, you know, the, 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 there's hardly anything left of the Voting Rights Act. So it's pretty serious. On the other hand, it will go to the Supreme Court, which on this particular provision has already, you know, recognized its vitality. But you always start with, uh, you know, three. Mm-hmm. We're such Alito and Thomas, and and you know it's 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 a serious serious situation. But just in closing, though, if if standing is important, which they often argue is, what is their argument for the Fifth Circuit to get rid of Section Two? Because you mentioned that ACLU brought a no. case, but any citizens group is able to to bring a case in a state that's that's being flagrantly gerrymandered, and there's a whole bunch of them. We could list them, but. There have been hundreds, but, but, you know, if you read Section 2, it doesn't say that exactly, and that would be it. What would be left, by the way, the DOJ, could, st- which came in here and said, don't do this, a circuit, the DOJ could still bring cases, but that's a fraction of what could be brought. That would be the teeny little, um, mm. you know, fine gossamer line that, that remains. But, but, yeah, private people couldn't. And they've always been able to, on the other hand, says the a circuit accurately, the court, while assuming it again and again and again, has never expressly held it. And that point that I just made, Justice Brett Kavanaugh made himself in a concurrence last year. So as I say, you know, it's it's uh, it's a heart attack. The patient might recover or or not. If and one more point here in the current Congress, there's going to be no appetite for reviving it if the court kills it, and we're, we'd be talking about it terribly weakened Voting Rights Act. Well, Harry Lippman, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Always a pleasure. As I say, happy Thanksgiving to background briefers everywhere. (laughs) Thank (laughs) you, Harry. And again, Harry Lippman's a former United States attorney and a deputy assistant attorney general in the Justice Department. He's now a senior fellow at the USC Annenberg Center. He's the executive producer and host of the Talking Feds podcast and a senior legal affairs columnist at the Los Angeles Times, where his latest article is Trump called the latest 14th Amendment ruling a victory. He couldn't be more wrong. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back and go to the Netherlands to discuss the victory of Gert Wilders in the Dutch elections and a warning back in 2010 from our guest that Gert Wilders is the prototype of contemporary fascism. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Rob Ryman, who is the founder and president of the Nexus Institute, which brings together the world's foremost intellectuals, artists, and politicians to think and talk about humanist questions that really matter. The Nexus Institute has become one of Europe's most prestigious organizations to inspire public intellectual debate. He's the author of the best-selling book, Nobility of Spirit, a Forgotten Ideal, and To Fight Against This Age, which is about the rise of fascism and how to combat it. And back in 2010, Rob warned then that Gert Wilders is the prototype of contemporary fascism. Welcome to Background Briefing, Rob Ryman. Oh, hi. It's a great pleasure to be with you, uh, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Rob. And 
You uh, warned back in 2010 about Gerd Wilders, often referred to as the Dutch Trump. He has a similar hairstyle. Of course, his hair's dyed peroxide blonde, but there's much more to him. So let's just give me a portrait of the man that came ahead in the recent Dutch elections. Well, again, I, I wrote my essay on the eternal return of fascism because of uh, Willis and because of at that time, uh, the then prime minister, he's still our prime minister, uh, Rutte, gave the red carpet and, um, and made him part of the coalition. When that happened, I thought, OK, we're, we're dealing with the return of fascism because Mr. Wilders, we can call Trump uh, the American Wilders, uh, because Wilders was ahead of him. Is the incarnation of contemporary fascism because he has he has all the characteristics. You know what is fascism? I mean, fascism is fundamentally the politicization of the resentment of the mass man. When you're dealing with a society which is which is no longer a real democracy, but because it's a mass democracy and it's a mass democracy because the spirit of democracy disappeared like already Walt Whitman wrote about in his Democratic uh, Vistas, when, when when the society is no longer guided by spiritual or moral values, but is in the grip of fear and greed. And uh, uh, and then with the demagogue coming along to exploit the resentment and the fear of people, and he uses the politics of lies and the politics of hatred with the scapegoats, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, no, that's, that's what you get. And the real problem is, Albert Camus and Thomas Mann, independent of each other, in 1947 made the same warning. Don't make the mistake. The war is over. But fascism will not disappear as long as you're dealing with the kind of society as we are having now. And then Camus, at the end of uh, his great novel La Paix, says, well, it can take 70 years, but at the very end of it, you know, the, 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 the it will come back. And that's happening, you know, well, you have seen it in America. You still see it in America. We've seen it in Hungary. We see it in Italy. We see it in the Netherlands. Next in line will probably be Germany. And in 2027, when uh, President Macron has to resign, quite easily Le Pen can take uh, can take over. So it's it's a Western phenomenon again. Well, it's certainly emerging here in the United States because Trump is now becoming more and more openly fascist and he's preparing for a new regime, one of retribution and punishment. And on even on day one now, he's expected to invoke the Insurrection Act and round up his enemies. So we're not immune from what's happening in Europe here in the United States. No, I think it's very important for all the listeners to understand that fascism is a kind of cancer in the society, in the body of a society, at the very moment that such a society is no longer taking care for its own moral and spiritual values. But when it's only about, about this, this, this fear and this greed, and let's face it, you know, which is which is a form which which re- also relates to our economic model, which relates to the fact that we have reduced our education to only what's good for the economy and good for the state. When 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 education is completely focused on utilitarian issues, then you get into uh, trouble. You also get into trouble when the whole when the whole thing is getting politicized. All the phenomena which we have seen in the twenties and the thirties here in Europe are now getting uh, back. And basically, you know, the whole society is uh, complicit uh, with this. Uh, this is not coming out of uh, the blue. When you're dealing with, and 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 it manifests itself when you're dealing with, with big uh, economic crisis or social crisis as we are having uh, here now. And yes, I mean, the, the, the those people, the fascists, they are full of resentment themselves. They are very, very aggressive. And I will never forget when I published The Fight Against This Age in America in 2018. The New York Times uh, originally asked me to write a po- op-ed about the book. And I wrote an op-ed. And I, with arguments, I said, well, you know, you, you be aware that with Trump, you are dealing with the classic contemporary fascists, as we are having here in Europe with uh, Wilders, Le Pen, and so on, so on, so on. And they didn't want to publish my op-ed. So I thought, well, maybe I did something wrong. Or, so I, I wrote something else, but with the same argument. Trump is the class. They didn't want to publish it. So I asked, I mean, what's your problem? Well, the answers were very enlightening for me. First of all, well, it's against our business model. Okay, the business model. We have to keep access to the White House. We cannot see these things. And probably some of our readers will, will be upset. Then, then, but the more principal argument was, mm, you know, and, and he's not Hitler. 
I said, well, you know, but I'm, I'm talking about fascism. I mean, it's, of course he's not uh, Hitler. Fascism is the world of Mussolini and, and, and Franco and Fidela and, you know, a whole, 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 whole list of people. And then they say, well, but for us, you know, based on the movies we have seen, uh, uh, fascist is Hitler. So, well, what about reading books and a little bit of history instead of looking at the movies? Mm. But the, the final argument was, but Trump is not violent. I said, when it's in the language, you can wait for it. You can wait for it. Well, you saw that a couple of years uh, uh, later. It's now uh, becoming uh, obvious. But again, the same thing uh, here. You know, this whole fascist movement, at the end, it will lead to, to all kinds of civil war. That's what we will get. And then the question is, you know, why is it that we have not have been able to stop this much long uh, ago? You know, why is it that we kept on this track that's only about the economy, that's all about uh, self-interest, and that's also on the side of the left of a kind of, you know, you know, self-rightness and a kind of, you know, super moral behavior that everybody has to become vegan or something like that. That's also not very helpful. Sure. But this doesn't happen in a vacuum, the, the rise of fascism, even if it's, if it, if it's there you know, lingering in the, in the political DNA of, of most countries. Nevertheless, what's happened in this Dutch election uh, where Wilders Freedom Party, the PVV, came out ahead with 37 yep. seats, um, yep. they campaigned on the, on the issue of emigration and the head of the VVD, Dylan Yisil Gods, yeah. uh, she comes from Turkey, of course, so she was very much a, they got 24 seats and they were the ruling party prior to this election. They haven't formed a coalition and nobody's formed a coalition yet. But let's address the issue of immigration. In other words, there are a lot of people in the Netherlands who voted for, for Wilders because they think that the foreigners are getting preferential treatment compared to the, the local people. And there's a resentment yeah, well, there. And that's what Trump is doing here, too. So Ian, it's, it's all based on a big, big lie. And of, again, you know, if you want to, if you don't want to understand what the politics of fascists are, it's always the politics of lies. It's always the politics of resentment. It's always the politics of hatred. What are the facts? The facts here in the Netherlands are... Well, first of all, you know, the, the, the political stupidity within the political class. Let's go back a little bit in history. When Bill Clinton, Tony Blair, and here Wim Kok and, uh, and uh, the next political leader started to embrace the third wave. The third wave was giving up in social democracy that the purpose of a social democracy is to elevate people and therefore it's to educate them and it's to give them uh, access to the world of culture. They introduced basically the whole world of neoliberalism and it was by, based on the fact, well, we can also make you rich. Well, if that's the case, people are not stupid. Well, again, let's go, let's go to the original uh, party and let's go to the conservatives or in your country, the Republicans, because they really know what it is to make us rich. So social democracy disappeared in Europe. Now, we had the same thing with uh, immigration. First of all, most of the immigration in the Netherlands is based on labor people coming from Hungary, Poland, uh, uh, Czechoslovakia, Bulgaria, etc., etc., at the request of the business class to do cheap labor for them. That's 85% of the immigration. Then 10% of the immigration are the international students because those people are uh, needed at the universities because for the university, it's a kind of business model for them. What is, what is that the lie that the conservatives of Rutte presented to the uh, country? It was based on the fact that there is a law that when the parents are here, the children can come as well, so that the children from Africa or Syria, basically Syria, could come here as well. And they use that fact that, you know, when those children are coming, uh, immigration will explode, we will lose our culture, etc., etc., etc. So they, and so the coalition collapsed on the fact that a week before, Stoltenberg said, you know, probably I will uh, resign as Secretary General uh, mid-2024. Uh, and, and and Rutte thought, okay, I have to prepare myself for that job. So, okay, let's go. And then what is that uh, this, this this new leader of uh, the Conservative said? Well, you know, I'll, I'll take this whole thing of immigration. Because, of course, I think that if we also start talking about immigration as the big danger for uh, our Dutch uh, uh, culture, we will have more votes. And again, the people aren't stupid. If that's the issue, let's go to the original. And the original are, of course, the fascists of uh, Wilders. So, I mean, it, it is this kind of, you know, 
corruption and, and political stupidity, which made it possible for Wilders to say, okay, well, you know, uh, here I am, here I come. And, you know, shamefully, 25% of the Dutch people, 25% of the Dutch people, which is a st- still an extremely rich country, was, 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 was accepting uh, uh, the lie. And now the consequences will be enormous. I mean, on the on the hit list of Ian Bo- uh, Ma- of, sorry, of of Wilders is that uh, no subsidies anymore for culture or uh, um, any any form of the arts. That we should get out of the uh, EU. I mean, it's it's insane. But well, you know, history told us that that tells us that that the insanity can become politics, and then we'll get things as you probably will get when when Trump is there again. Well, you have the example of Brexit, though, to follow, which has been a catastrophe for the United Kingdom. And by the way, in 2009, the UK banned Wilders from entering the country. So he's going, he wants the exit, uh, which is to leave, leave the EU, stop foreign aid, ban foreign students, um, and, and of course, stop aid to Ukraine, which puts him in, in bed with Orban and... Uh, yeah, and he's Slovakia. also, he's, he's a supporter of Putin. He's a supporter of Putin, but... Look, there are many terrible things going on in this world. We see it in America. We've seen it with Netanyahu before these terrible things happened, but he was also on the track, uh, you know, to to, to move uh, Israel out of uh, the world of uh, uh, democracies. The thing is, those people are supported by massive amounts of people, right? I mean, even if Wilders would disappear, or even that within a coalition, because fortunately we have a kind of coalition model, so he, he cannot go to the complete extreme yet. The fact is that those people who voted for him, the anger, the fear, the resentment of those people are there. And the question is how to address those issues. How to address those issues? Now, you do not address those issues by telling people that everybody should become vegan and 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 only drink sparkling water or something like that, right? We, we ha- you have to deal with this. You have to you have to educate people and stop this nonsense that the, all education should focus nowadays on science, technology, economic, and math- mathematics, which is the main uh, best-selling point of the so-called universities. It was already Nietzsche, again, who 150 years ago said to the students in Basel, I said, I pity all of you because the school of civilization is over. Your education will be reduced to what's good for the economy and what's good for the state. And you'll be happy with it because the only thing you're interested in is making a lot of money. 150 years ago, he couldn't be more right already then, and now it became more right. So the the, the if, if and, and look at the American publishing world, I mean, what they are doing. So there is a whole complex, I mean, but I want to make the point I want to make about American publishing. They stopped being real publishers. Listen, or American television. So there is a whole complex in our society which drives those people into their own lies and stupidities. And that's the core thing what we have to address. Just a political class, they will not be able to solve this thing. Media, education, all of that. Well, media, though, that that is what's made the most profound difference here in the United, in the United States has been uh, the emergence of Fox News and, and other far-right uh, platforms. So you have people living inside a, a bubble of delusion and they're impervious mm-hmm. to facts and information. When you say the answer is to educate people, well, you can't educate people who are, are basically siloed off in their own bubble, which is what uh, Fox has done, and it's been very yes. Effective. But you see, the the, the uh, long time ago, uh, one of the great, 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 greatest philosophers we have had, Baruch Spinoza, here in the Netherlands, wrote you know his books in which he basically outlined what 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 the fundamental premises is to have a vibrant democracy that, and what is a democracy a democracy is where a variety of people with a variety of backgrounds and a variety of faiths or non-faiths or whatsoever can live together in freedom and dignity and therefore that you have a government who protect everything what is vulnerable you 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 protect elderly people you protect the planet you pro- protect the sick people you pro- you protect children that's what you have to do and that only can work 
in a democracy, which means that everybody feels a responsibility and a commitment to participate in the democracy. And according to Spinoza, and he couldn't be more right, or much later, Thomas Mann, when he came to America and started to talk about the common victory of democracy, you have to educate them, you have to elevate them, you, you have to, 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 to cultivate the spirit of uh, democracy. And if you don't cultivate the critical mind, if, if everything also on the top levels of a society is based on how much dollars you can make, the celebrity cult, etc., 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 that's the beginning of uh, uh, the end. And, um, well, social media is not helpful. Fox News is not uh, helpful. But look, I mean, we, we know these things. I'm, I'm convinced that if you, if you, if you get your, your education right, starting with, you know, primary education, then high school, then college, and you, you, you reintroduce a book culture, then you have a very good start in recultivating uh, the mind of the people and with it, cultivating the spirit of democracy. Well, Rob Ryman, I thank you for joining us. And uh, just in closing, of course, Wilders has not been able to pull together a coalition. It'll take some time. The Conservative uh, Party that was ruling party that just came in second or third, I guess, third. They, don't, they, don't, they don't want to form a coalition. Uh, not the, yet. The new not social, yet. Co- <laughs> the new social contract yet. party, they had 20 seats. The Farmers Party, which lost a lot of seats, has seven. So just in closing, in a, f- a very brief moment, is there a possibility that that Wilders won't be able to form a coalition? The possibility is always there, but the possibility is very, very uh, small. What the Conservatives did, they did the same thing. When we had the party of Pim Fortuyn, who was killed, they did the same trick. The, the, the reason why eventually they will get into it, first of all, the left has no chance to, to form a coalition. If the Conservatives now would go for on the left, they will lose, lose even more uh, votes. And the, the problem for Wilders is he has no people to, 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 to form a government. Because all, he, he didn't expect this. And he's, it's, he's the only member of that uh, party. So if he wants to form a government, um, then probably he has to be and the prime minister and the minister of defense and the minister of education and the minister of foreign affairs as he's, as he's ruling his own uh, party. So mm-hmm. it, it, will be, it will be a very complex thing. But I fear that at the end of the day, because the people have spoken, uh, Wilders will have his coalition. And then, look, you know, very well possible that it will collapse uh, sometime uh, next year, but that will not have taken out the root of the problem. Right. I thank you for joining us, uh, Rob. I appreciate it. Well, uh, I'm, very, uh, I'm grateful that I could, uh, could make a few points about what's going on uh, here in the Netherlands. Well, again, I've been speaking with Rob Ryman, who's the founder and president of the Nexus Institute, which brings together the world's foremost intellectuals, artists and politicians to think and talk about humanist questions that really matter. The Nexus Institute has become one of Europe's most prestigious organizations to inspire public intellectual debate. He's the author of the best-selling books, Nobility of Spirit, A Forgotten Ideal, and To Fight Against This Age, about the rise of fascism and how to combat it. And he warned back in 2010 that Gert Wilders is the prototype of contemporary fascism. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into whether the Indian government is behind an alleged assassination attempt on a Sikh activist on U.S. soil after another Sikh activist was killed in Canada. But I couldn't fit the part too dumb or too smart. Ain't it funny how we all turned out? I guess we are the people our parents Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Christine Fair, who's a professor of security studies program within Georgetown University's Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service. She previously served as a political officer with the United Nations Assistance Mission to Afghanistan in Kabul. 
and is a specialist on both India and Pakistan and the author of Fighting to the End, Pakistan's Army's Way of War. And in their own words, understanding Lashkar-e-Taiba, she speaks and reads Hindi, Urdu and Punjabi and has a recent article at Lawfare, The Deep Roots of the India-Canada Diplomatic Rift and another at Foreign Policy, India spat with Canada is a win-win situation for Modi. Welcome to Background Briefing, Christine Fair. Thank you for having me as usual. Well, thanks for joining us, Chris. And uh, obviously there was the murder of the Sikh activist Nijar in in British Columbia in Canada. And Prime Minister Trudeau in on September the 18th went public and to before the Canadian Parliament said he had credible evidence that there was an Indian hit squad, whether or not it was associated with the RAW, the research analysis wing, uh, the intelligence service of India, we don't know. But now we have an incident here in the United States that's similar, where a, a Sikh activist, again, uh, Poonan, who's with Sikhs for Justice, and we've been in touch with him, as a matter of fact. This has led the United States government, uh, it's the National Security Council and President Biden, to uh, protest to Modi and the Indian government about the possibility of a planned assassination of a Sikh activist on American soil. That in itself is pretty brazen. Do you think that is really what's happening here, Chris? So I can't say for sure. But what I will say, um, I think that it's highly likely that they did so in Canada. I know that Panun is a high-level target uh, for India. India has been asking the United States for for many years now, because I, I think you know that um, I've been working on the Khalistan issue for many decades. Uh, most people don't know that. They generally know my work on Pakistan. So uh, and just just for the benefit of the audience, Khalistan is the is the Sikh homeland that they want to carve out in Punjab, which Khalistan stands for land of the pure. Yeah, and for the cynics. Kali means empty and San means land. So some cynics will dismiss it as the empty land. So, yeah, the, the uh, terrorist movement for an independent six state goes back to the 1980s. Um, Panu, in particular, he has, as you noted, uh, six, six for justice. He has been a target of the Indian government for some time. They've asked the United States to uh, list six for justice as a terrorist organization. And the United States has, has largely, politely uh, denied these requests by India. Largely, the United States sees him as operating within the remit of protected speech. Now, I've been studying this guy for quite some years, and I'm going to tell you very bluntly that some of his speech is clearly not protected, right? Um, He has been behind billboards that have called for direct (laughs) violence against Indian diplomats as well as uh, Indian diplomatic facilities in the United States, Canada, and elsewhere. That kind of speech is not protected. And so from my point of view, the United States has not adequately taken seriously uh, India's concerns. There is a sick legal defense fund, SALDEF, um, and of course they've been very supportive of him for reasons I'm not quite sure, um, given that he has ex- explicitly engaged in calls to violence. So the question arises whether or not India is working through criminal networks to assassinate these sick activists, such as Najar. Um, there were also two persons of interest who died mysteriously in the United Kingdom. And many of my contacts in the Punjab, and I, you know I spent a lot of time in the Punjab and I speak Punjabi, they're, they're pretty convinced that the Indians had those guys in the UK knocked off. So I don't think it's improbable that having successfully assassinated Niger, ostensibly, India hasn't bared much of a price for it. In fact, Justin Trudeau has come out looking like an idiot. India um, has particularly Prime Minister, Prime Minister Modi, he continues to burnish his strongman credentials. So whether Trudeau has the intelligence um, to show that India assassinated, assassinated Nijar, Modi wins. And if Trudeau doesn't have the intelligence, Modi still wins because Modi is basically showing the incompetence and the ineptitude of, as my friends in India say, the white man. <laughs> because... 
this issue is phrased uh, in, in, in colonial terms. So I don't, I don't think it's improbable, um, given that India hasn't faced any kind of cost um, for allegedly assassinating Nijar, if they did, if they did do that, that they would attempt to take out Panu. I know Panu is a very, very high target for the Indians. He is a high priority individual to eliminate. Well, we've been in touch with Panu, and, and of course, he his condition of being interviewed was he didn't want to talk about what's happening at the U.S. National Security Council and, and the the National Security Council and also the FBI saying you know he doesn't want to talk about the important stuff that we want to talk about, which is uh, whether or not. Uh, he was targeted for assassination and what he's up to. And I mean, he, he just wanted to use... Clear. He could he could be just completely fabricating this because this, this guy is not a font of integrity. But we, we, have to, we have to table this as well, that this could just be a fabrication. Right. Well, he basically just wanted to talk about Sikhs for justice. So India has a case, if you go back through history, right, starting in the in the 1980s with, I mean, well, let's talk about that. Well, the, the, the Golden Temple siege and right. that obviously, it was actually quite brutal, was it not? At least five to 7,000 civilians were killed. So it's complicated because the reason why there was a Sikh militancy that culminated in Bindranwale who was the Sikh leader that holds himself up in the, in the Golden Temple, in fact, holding him up, holding himself up in the Golden Temple, was Indira Gandhi herself. So Prime Minister Indira Gandhi was a megalomaniac. She had very little regard for uh, democracy. Um, you might see some resemblance between her and another contemporary American um, vying for the presidential uh, race. Um, she wanted power at all costs, and uh, she was essentially using, um, in some states where there was Congress, where there was a, a Congress opponent in power at the level of the, at the level of the state, she was using a constitutional tool um, by which the governor, who is appointed by the center, could prorogue the state elections. And so, for example, she did that in Kashmir, and when her son, after she was assassinated, rigged those elections, galvanized the, the Kashmir insurgency. What she did in the Punjab, um, which was another assault on India's secularism, she wanted to essentially divide the Akali Dal, the Shiromani Akali Dal, which has the unfortunate acronym of SAD. SAD was a Sikh communal party um, that was a serious opponent to the Congress. So she thought that she could uh, basically cause electoral division over SAD's relative moderate position by supporting Bindranwale. At the time, Bindranwale was in jail for the killing of several what we might say heterodoxical Sikhs called the Nirankaris. They're sort of like the emities of Sikhism. And so when I try to explain who Bindranwale was, Bindranwale was like the Zarqawi of Islam, incredibly mm -hmm. sectarian, very brutal towards, uh, murderously brutal towards members of the, the Nirankari sect. So he was in prison serving time on charge for murder when she sent one of her emissaries to dispatch him from, from prison. And he did a pretty good job of serving her interests. Some of the members of the Akali Dal uh, veered off into violence um, under his influence. But, but ultimately, she rendered the Akali Dal relatively ineffective at the cost so that's good for her politically. But the cost was high because Bindranwale, once he realized that he had been a pawn of Indira Gandhi, became virulently anti-state. Now, he never himself called for Khalistan, but he is the titular head of the movement that would, that would call for Khalistan. So he set himself up in the Golden Temple. He heavily militarized it. He defaced the Golden Temple. 
He himself took residence at one of the most sacred of the buildings of the complex, the Akal Tukt, which is like the throne of, of, of truth, I guess you might say. Um, and he had established himself um, on a floor of the Akal Tukt, which is even higher than the Guru Granth Sahib, which is six sacred scripture. He put holes in the Akal Tukt, you know, sort of making parapets where he could shoot. The whole place was turned into a fortress. And, and he was killing people in the Golden Temple. His goons were killing people throughout the Punjab countryside. And Prime Minister Indira Gandhi decided that enough was enough. And I, there's a lot of debate about whether or not she did this deliberately or whether she was just stupid. She chose the day um, when people were celebrating the death of um, the fifth guru, Guru Arjan, which was very significant because Guru Arjan would be one of the first of the, of the 10 gurus to really become, um, to embrace martyrdom and his family was tortured. So in Sikh martyrology, he is a pivotal figure. And so martyring so many Sikhs on the day to commemorate Guru Arjun's martyrdom was, you know, be just so enraging for so many Sikhs. But because it was Guru Arjun's martyrdom, um, there were, thousands of pilgrims in the temple. And so um, the, the Indian army decided to conduct the raid at night, a very foolish idea because they did not have any night combat capabilities. And they had surprisingly little intelligence on the fortifications of the temple, which is really unforgivable because the temple was always open to the public, right? Um, they just simply failed. And so they didn't take the temple um, and what they thought by morning. Um, in fact, this went on for, for several days. Um, they also engaged in uh, mop-up, so-called mop-up operations throughout the countryside. And when it was all said and done, of course, Bindran Wale was dead. Many of his chief lieutenants were dead, as were thousands of civilians. And there's a lot of debate over the number of civilians that died. But um, if there wasn't a, a global if there wasn't a globally supported Sikh insurgency before the Golden Temple raid, there was afterwards. So what's happened um, in the after the Golden Temple raid, a variety of Sikh militant groups took up the call explicitly for Khalistan. Right. And they they ravaged the Punjab. Probably 25, 35,000 people were killed. And so as a result of that, many Sikhs left for Britain. They particularly went to Canada. That's been a very old, um, des- an old, there's old di- diaspora and uh, ties with Canada and to the United States. And, th- and that's how you have so much Khalistani activism in the diaspora. But I can tell you today in the Punjab, there is no appetite for Khalistan whatsoever. Right. Just in the last couple of minutes then, Chris Fair, obviously in response to what happened in the, with the Golden Temple, the Sikh bodyguards of Indira Gandhi assassinated her, and then an Air India plane in June of '85 was bombed. And yeah, so there were several sequelae. So, as, as you noted, after Operation Blue Star, her Sikh bodyguards assassinated her. Congress goons, by, by Congress, of course, that's her political party. Congress goons organized a massive pogrom, and uh, exact death toll is uncertain, but tens of thousands of Sikhs in Delhi and elsewhere. Obviously, these were innocent Sikhs. They had nothing to do with it. The police were involved um, in, in terms of facilitating the violence. Electoral rules were used to identify um, Sikh, Sikh households and, and so forth. And then, as, you know, as a part of this, there was a massive state crackdown against Sikhs. And um, the atrocities of the Sikh militants were matched only by the atrocities of the Sikh uh, security forces. Mass graves are still being found. And, and of course, six immolate their dead, right? But it, if you, Im- you know, if you're taking into custody um, illegally thousands of six and you're killing them, you just can't dispose of them by burning them. That, that draws attention to the fact that you're, you're immolating. So many of the six that were disappeared were, were just summarily dumped in mass graves. And as I said, they, many Sikhs fled to the diaspora and 
the diaspora became, you know, as you also know, I spent a lot of time in Pakistan. Pakistani intelligence was always supporting the, the Khalistani movement. And the ISI operatives, it's strongly believed, and there is at least um, some forms of evidence that suggest that the ISI has been very busy cultivating six in the diaspora. So going to your point about the 1985 um, Air India, I think it was 184, uh, this is where Justin Trudeau's father really screwed the pooch. Um, India had been asking for the terrorists behind that bombing. And um, Pierre Trudeau, he declined. And the reason he gave for declining was that he didn't think Prime Minister Indira Gandhi was adequately referential to the Queen of England. And he denied it. And then the fellow, as we well know, um, brought down Air India 184. And so there's India has issues with Canada because it has so long harbored so many of these six activists for Columbine. But it, it also has a very specific Trudeau problem, first with Pierre Trudeau, but also with Justin Trudeau, who has made Canadian six sort of his niche constituency. And he will be found engaging in all sorts of sick cultural, political and social activities, including activities that venerate the so-called martyrs, um, as, as they're called by sick militants, uh, who assassinated Indira Gandhi. Well, Chris, we've run out of time, but I appreciate this important and cogent history. And of course, at the moment, this is a bad time with U.S. relations with Modi, simply because the U.S. and and India are working together on the Quad, and they're also trying to find ways to confront China or to even contain China, as the Chinese say. So... This could not be yeah. happening at a worse time. Uh, well, actually, Ian, let me just push back. For India, it's the best time, right? Because India learned from Nijar that India is more important than Canada. It also learned that the United States wasn't going to do a damn thing about it. So from India's point of view, this is the best time to do it. You don't know what tomorrow is going to look like. Right now, the U.S. is India. And, and in some ways, the U.S. needs India more than India needs the United States. And that's a powerful argument uh, for taking out these guys now while India has the leverage. Well, Christine Fair, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. Well, again, I've been speaking with Christine Fair, who's a professor of security studies program within Georgetown University's Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service. She previously served as a political officer with the United Nations Assistance Mission to Afghanistan in Kabul and is a specialist on both India and Pakistan and the author of Fighting to the End, Pakistan's Army's Way of War. And in their own words, understanding Lashkar-e-Taiba, she speaks and reads Hindi, Urdu and Punjabi, and has a recent article at Lawfare, The Deep Roots of the India-Canada Diplomatic Rift, and another at Foreign Policy, India spat with Canada is a win-win situation for Modi. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now.
One more life.